Hi, I'm Corrine Levy, and welcome to the fifth episode of Script Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. This week, we'll hear a previously recorded in-house Script Chat with guests Colson Whitehead and Michael Cohen, a professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. Colson Whitehead's novel, The Underground Railroad, was published in 2016 to rave reviews from columnists, Oprah, and even President Obama. And the Scribd editorial team quickly fell under the spell of the ambitious, expansive, and important novel as well. What follows is a fascinating discussion of history, literary theory, contemporary race relations, and what it's like to join the pantheon of Oprah's book club authors. You can read The Underground Railroad on Scribd for free with your subscription. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And with that, here's Colson Whitehead and Professor Michael Cohen at Scribd's San Francisco headquarters. Enjoy. Me. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted you to know that I, I told my class of 200 students at UC Berkeley that if uh, a better novel was published this year, now it is September, so I'm hedging my bets here, uh, but that I would eat that novel in front of them. <laughs> uh, I think it's a safe bet on my part, but, uh, but speaking of bets here, your last book on poker, The Noble Hustle, which is here, uh, portrays a character named Colson Whitehead, aka the unsubscribed kid, who suffers from all sorts of self-inflicted maladies and imaginary failures. And I'm wondering how this character might feel when it becomes apparent that his new book is about to become a huge hit after being endorsed by President Obama, Oprah Winfrey, and perhaps most importantly, Michiko Kakatan. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, it's been a, a very wild six weeks. Um, I'm in a good mood. You know, I'm trying to. <laughs> uh, it's very surprising and... You know, being in a good mood seems to be working. So um, <laughs> I, it's, my, it's my eighth book, and it doesn't always go like this. Sometimes critics understand what you're trying to do, and uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes people pick it up and take a chance on your book, and sometimes they don't. So when it happens like this, you have to go with it. So I've been a very happy boy the last few weeks. Congratulations. Well, I, mean, I wanted to ask you how you do feel about the, the Oprah Winfrey endorsement. Is there any temptation to go all Jonathan Franz in our honor and say, well, you know, this is... This popularity in book club sales are going to really damage my reputation as a starving, suffering novelist. Well, I mean, um, <laughs> you're in a, the same company as Toni Morrison, Cormac McCarthy, William Faulkner. So uh, those guys aren't too shabby. So I, I was really excited. You know, my books you know, can have oddball premises. So not everyone is down for a book that is uh, about elevator inspectors. Not everyone likes zombies. So if your uncle gambled away your house... Might not want to pick up a book about poker. So, um, what Oprah does is, you know, it just helps me jump the barrier to people who might not, not might not normally pick up my work. Uh, did President Obama call you when you read the book and said his name? Yeah, I haven't heard from him. But <laughs> I, I've invited him to uh, come over ribs once he takes you know, <laughs> over. Yeah, he's going to be retired soon. Uh, four months. He's going to have a lot of free time. So, if he wants to come over, bring Michelle. I'll have some healthy signs. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good idea. I think that'll work. You know, in, in the past, in your nonfiction about writing, you just you describe it as just this eternal damnation and torment. Is, has writing gotten any easier for you over the years? Well, I think, you know, I, I don't worry about finishing the book. I know it'll get done. It may be painful, but it always gets done in the end. And, you know, I, I like to make jokes about how hard it is, but um, and it is difficult. But you know, especially with this book, I remember the days where I figured out this or that 
about Cora, her mother, uh, Ridgeway, the slave catcher, and just remember you know, the real days of, of victory when you rewrite a book. Um, and it's those days when you something happens and you make a new kind of sentence for yourself that you haven't done before or figure out a way to plot something that's more efficient than you've done in the past. And so, you know, there's a lot of drudgery. There's also those really fun moments where um, you made a new leap or figured out something about the book uh, that's important and that stays with you also. Yeah, good. And it's important to hear or learn what sustains a writer and keeps them keeps them going in the silence and isolation. Food and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and stuff. But, uh, uh, but also those moments that, that you remember uh, in, the, in the process. Well, now that you've attained this a, a sort of new stage, uh, are you, will you consider writing comic books? And uh, if, if Marvel or DC were to come to you tomorrow, would you, uh, what character would you want to write? Well, you know, I, um, like a lot of people my age, uh, I was inspired to become a writer by reading science fiction and horror and also comic books. Uh, late 70s Marvel, early 80s Marvel, all those runs on the X-Men that are now uh, the mains of movies. And I think people my age uh, who are novelists either want to write the X-Men or draw the X-Men or be in the X-Men. That's uh, a pretty <laughs> common generational thread. Uh, well, I have been asked a few times, but um, whenever I try to get out of my form, do a film or a comic, it always seems like a lot of work. It seems really hard. So yeah. I, I, in between things... I'm like, oh, I can teach, or maybe I'll write a blockbuster screenplay. And after about 10 days, I'm like, this, I'll just write a novel. Uh, write a really hard. So, You're not tempted to take up some university post and try and teach 18-year-olds how to write? I have been, been teaching on and off uh, the last couple of years uh, in New York. And um, I've gotten better at it. When I started, I was pretty terrible. Um, so, so that's always there. But you know, the main thing is having time to write the books. I, I think we should all play to our strengths and do what's best. So like, let's let's turn to the book itself here. And, and maybe you can, I, what I would like is actually if you could just give us the sort of back of a book cover description of the text uh, as offered by the author himself. Sure, well, it's about the Underground Railroad. Um, I like to be direct. My book about Sag Harbor is called Sag Harbor. Um, <laughs> and it's about a woman in a young girl named Cora. She's 16 or 17. It's not clear how old she is because slave masters didn't keep track of how old their slaves were. They're moving around a lot, and the same way you might not know if your dog's spot is six or seven or what his birthday is, uh, that's how the slave masters saw their, their property. So um, she's on a plantation in Georgia. Uh, she's a stray in the parlance of the plantation. She has no family. Her mother's run off years before, and... Uh, a new slave who comes to the plantation plants the idea in her head that maybe they can avail themselves of the Underground Railroad to escape. And in this book, uh, the Underground Railroad is an actual network of tracks below America. I think I'm not alone in, in that. When I first heard about it, when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I envisioned a, a subway beneath the earth. And then you find out, uh, if you have a good teacher, a few minutes later, <laughs> that it's not. Um, so I was thinking, what if, what if it were a literal network? And that's a premise, not so much the story. So I kept thinking about it, and I added this other complication in that um, in every state, our hero goes through as she runs north, South Carolina, North Carolina, is a different state of American possibility, sort of like Gulliver's Travels. And so the book is being rebooted every 60 pages as she enters a new state uh, that presents an alternative view of American history, uh, what might have happened if we'd gone differently, and... Um, that's the basics. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Um, I, I really felt the kind of powerful pacing of the novel. It, it moves very deliberately and quickly in many respects. I mean, I, I felt uh, 
But the book contains so much more than its 306 pages. It seems it's a quick read. I really felt the narrative drive, but yet there are worlds within this. And I'm wondering, in a sense, it strikes me as a triumph of style and the kind of sentence structure. And your writing is very different in each of your books in many respects. I mean, I think it's still recognizably you and your voice. But this one is a very distinctive sense of style. Can you talk about like how you arrived at the kind of tone, uh, the narrative voice that this book offers? Sure. I mean, in general, it takes about, in my previous books, about 100 pages for like the, the, the narrative voice to, to come together. I'm always it's this, it's this narrator, someone who likes long sentences, short sentences, you know, big five-clause pile-ups, uh, more than more direct, first-person or third-person. But for the first time, you know, the voice clicked very quickly in the, in the first six pages. I open up with a, a six-page biographical sketch of Cora's mother. She follows her from when she's abducted in Western Africa and comes to various plantations in the U.S. And, and the voice uh, just came really quickly. And usually you have to, once you arrive at the voice, you have to go back and retrofit everything that's come before. But the kind of matter-of-fact nature of the narrator in the face of all the sort of brutality and odd events, he or she, however you want to gender a narrator, you know, tells a story, um, seem to fit. And I, I think I, I, it came partially from the slave narratives I used as research in the 1930s. FDR, during the Great Depression, uh, wanted to get people back to work, so he sent out writers <coughs> to interview former slaves, people who were kids or teenagers at the time of slavery. And some of the accounts are very quotidian, just about farming, others about master-slave relationships, but they're very matter-of-fact. They could just say, they could just go, uh, then my mother was sold off, never saw her again. I, that, the next day I started picking. And there's a whole universe in those two sentences, but they seem very removed from it. And while the, the book does get fantastic, as it goes on, I wanted that first section that takes place in Georgia to be realistic, as realistic as I can do it. And, um, and that matter-of-fact tone in delivering a lot of the brutality in that section seemed to be effective in terms of bringing the reader in and yeah. also... Well, and bridging the gap from the sort of realistic section to the, the historical fabulations and the conditions of possibility. Sure, as it gets wilder, you have this constant narrative voice that you know, is always matter-of-fact and, and guiding you through. So hopefully that's a good anchor. No, absolutely. So I, I am uh, trained as a historian, so I always start reading the book from the back to the front. So we start with the acknowledgments, which in this case, you mentioned Nathan Huggins and Stephen Jay Gould. And I'm just wondering, did you take classes from these men at Harvard? Um, I did. I mean, I wasn't the type of person to know my professor. I was always like in the, in the back row. But my first semester, 1987, as a freshman, I took a class called Changing Concepts of Race in America. And it was Nathan Huggins, historian, um, has a great book about the Harlem Renaissance. And Stephen Jay Gould, scientist, has a book about eugenics and um, mismeasurement of man. And uh, uh, all those stories, you know, it was my awakening as a young African-American to my history. And it stayed with me and, and, and ended up using a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the class in the book. Yeah, because it, it begs the question just how far back into your sense of self, your career as a writer does this this text actually go? Well, there's, you know, there's a section about the Tuskegee syphilis, syphilis experiment, and you know, we had a, a few classes on that, read the book Bad Blood. When I was a senior, I started reading more slave narratives, and that was Frederick Douglass's autobiography, Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs was a woman who um, uh, hit puberty. Her master had sexual designs on her, and she ran away and hid for seven years in an attic in North Carolina. 
until she could get passage out. I don't, I'm not sure she spent seven years totally. Um, I think she didn't want to get her people who held her in trouble when she published her, her story. But how do you spend seven years in an attic? And then that story stayed with me. And in the North Carolina section in this book, I, I've taken part of that story yeah. to animate. To someone who's read Harry Jacobs, which all of you should, um, it is, yeah, it's, it's very a remarkable reproduction, recapitulation of that. I mean, the North Carolina section is just horrifying. I mean, the, the, the South Carolina is as well. And we'll try and keep some spoilers off the table here. But the North Carolina section is truly horrifying. And it begs the question about, um, in reading this, it made me think of something that, you know, some of your nonfiction that I read, where you talk about very powerfully of your lifelong love of horror movies. Uh, obviously, Zone One, your previous novel, is a zombie uh, story you said in New York. Uh, but this seems, in some ways, like a consolidation of a lifetime worth of thinking about what horror movies would look like if black folks were the stumbling feminist protagonist in American history itself with a monster chasing. Well, I think, you know, there's, um, you know, built into the narrative of safe escape is danger, suspense, uh, all those moments when the white lady falls and has to get up. Right. Uh, but that's, uh, that's horror. Chased by the monster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can't get any more higher stakes than life or death. And, if, and yeah. the penalty for running away is at the discretion of the master, but in the deep cotton states was, was death. Right. And uh, so in organizing the story, I knew I wanted to have those moments of adventure, mm -hmm. um, those moments, those sort of hair-raising moments. And just, you know, the, the material itself, I, I think, has that action suspense structure built into it. Sure. I mean, did you then sort of give yourself a set of sort of historical rules or some kind of, I'm thinking about the, I'm not sure what you would call them. I think of them as historical fabulations, the North Carolina, which would say that no uh, genocide of African Americans and the former slaves did not happen in the United States. But there were voices in North Carolina and elsewhere saying, after the Haitian Revolution, the solution to this problem is to just kill all the black people in America. Sure. And it, mean, didn't, it didn't actually happen, but you can then turn that into fiction in a certain way. And I'm wondering... What were the, you know, how did you, did you put limits on yourself in terms of thinking about how to create these, uh, as you described them, states of possibility? Well, definitely things I, I knew I wanted to put into the book uh, early on when I started writing. And then there are you know, things you come across in research and, and want to insert. So my rule was, you know, once it's not a historical novel, if you're making a literal underground railroad, obviously you're departing from the, <laughs> the truth a bit. But that, you know, but just having made that decision, it allowed me to, play with time, and so I could bring in uh, the Tuskegee experiments, I could play yeah. with race laws in North Carolina and, and Oregon, and bring in the Holocaust, you know, I think, uh, different kinds of, of oppression. So my rule was, I'm not sticking to the facts, but I'm sticking to the truth, and the truth of 1850 emanates, you know, much further into the present, so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wonder, you know, that this is a, a work that fits into a kind of Growing but established genre, we think of the sort of neo-slave narrative uh, through, you know, Toni Morrison, Ishmael Reed, uh, Octavia Butler, or I would think in it like someone like Kara Walker, the visual artist Kara Walker. Did you find yourself trying to embrace these kinds of precursors as influences? Did you have to sort of tune them out, or is there an anxiety in wearing your influences to one to another? Well, you think depending on the book, I, I want to see what other people are doing, or sometimes I don't. It really depends how I feel about the material. With this, I want to reread. Beloved, I hadn't read it in 25 years. Mm -hmm. I hadn't read The Known World by Edward Jones since it came out. So that was like 12 or 14 years. And um, I opened up Beloved, read 30 pages. And I'm just like, you know, I'm totally screwed. It's Toni Morrison. <laughs> uh, she's a genius. Um, uh, and so I stopped. But 
no matter what you're writing, whether it is it's about war or a family story or slavery, uh, probably someone smarter and more talented than you has done before. All you can hope is that you have something to bring to the table and that you have your distinct point of view to add. You know, I didn't worry about competing. I don't worry about uh, like this sort of stuff. I just hope that if it's not in you know, the top 10 slavery novels, maybe it's in the top 20. And, you know, um, I, think uh, I think you're doing better than that. But basically, yeah. you know, basically do your best no matter <laughs> if it's about this well, or poker or whatever. I mean, it's interesting, though, because all of those texts do actually have an element of fantastical. I mean, Beloved is a ghost story. Um, Kindred is a time travel story. Uh, you know, Ishmael Reed is Ishmael Reed and has no, you know, the... the comic anachronism is the modus operandi, so it's, in a sense, you're in good good hands. I mean, is it, did, were you ever tempted to just try and write a, a, a comprehensively realistic novel about slavery? No, it never occurred to me. It was always, you know, what if it, right. it was actually a real thing. I think in terms of, probably the most realistic section is the, the Georgia section, and just to sure. honor the slave dead, my nameless ancestors, my great, great, great whatever is who lived and died in Georgia or Florida or Louisiana, I really have no idea because it's lost. The more research I did, the more, I knew it was, there weren't going to be a lot of jokes in this book, but I knew that even my satirical reserve, the, the distance I usually keep, I would not be able to keep up. So really, it does enter into fabulism and fantastic effects as it goes on, but that first 60 pages, you know, is as real as I can make it. Yeah. No, I think it, but that was my sort of initial fascination with the tone, that you're able to give us a narrative voice that goes from the realism of the plantation in Georgia to a, a literal subway to this South Carolina with a, a skyscraper and eugenicists and museum, you know, you know, live subjects in museums and all these kinds of things that are not literal in the sense that they, they don't, that didn't actually happen, but they, they are, as you say, they're true. But the tone can remain so consistent. The voice is so consistent. Yeah, and that's the anchor. I think you don't want, you know... When Cora sees a skyscraper, a twelve-story building, you don't want her to go like, "What's that huge building? What you know? What do you call that?" I mean, that's, like, that's uh, you know, boring. Not, not what the book's about. And she's underground. I, I didn't want to have her just underground. Like for some reason, I guess because Gene Wilder died, I keep seeing uh, that Willy Wonka scene where they're in that tunnel and the flashing lights. And I could have looked, you know, had, in yeah. my younger days, I would have had ten pages on the flat on the tunnel. Uh, but that's not what the story's about. And so I was really trying to bring myself in and. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, in particular, one of the things I thought was really quite powerful is that the novel is a reckoning not just with the centrality of slavery to American history, but also to the centrality of slavery to the history of American capitalism. You write, stolen bodies working stolen land, it was an engine that did not stop, its hungry boiler fed with blood. Why is this an important question for you to write about? I think just being, you know, being raised, we were talking about Generation X before uh, we came out here, and... You know, I, I was raised on the counterculture movies of the 70s, mm -hmm. where there's a strong critique of, of power structures, and you follow the money, and that's um, how, how the world works. <laughs> um, so, I think, uh, if you call it Marxist, or I'm not sure what, what you... I'm okay with that. What, what, you, <laughs> what you label it, but yeah, it's all about money in the end. And, and so... Well, there's a kind of insistent, like, colorblindness sort of enters in this kind of capitalist vein because all it is, is is blood. The engine runs on blood. It's Irish blood, African blood, native blood, doesn't matter, the engine runs on blood. And, and, and everybody's enslaved by a system. Right. You know, slave master has to this pay off This is the really debts. dark part of the novel <laughs> he warned you about, but yeah. As opposed to the happy parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, Cora, as a girl entering puberty, is expected to pump out children because children means more hands to work the land. 
more cotton, more cotton's more money, and more slaves to sell. And so she is a, a vessel of, of capitalism. Uh, Bridgeway, the slave catcher, serves the system uh, in terms of keeping order, making sure slaves don't escape. And, and so the great economic engine can keep going. His father, Bridgeway, the slave catcher's father, is a, is a blacksmith. And uh, his business takes off with the rise of the cotton trade because someone has to make the wheels for the carts that's bringing all the cotton to market. Someone has to make the nails for all the houses that are popping up, all these new towns that are popping up to support the cotton trade. And so everyone you know, is uh, shackled in different ways to system and I want you know, to explore that as well. Well, it also brings up the, the question, I think, that it, it drives so much of the novel, particularly this sort of latter half of it, is this question of what, what is freedom? What is this thing that we, we call freedom? You know, how do we know that we possess it in this moment? Like, is it, a, is it around the corner or is it right here? Can it last? Is this, I mean, it seems like one of the more profound meditations in the text is to trouble this notion of what it means to be free. Well, sticking with, you know, Cora's point of view, she's sort of a place, a city called Pennsylvania, where perhaps a distant cousin is gone. And uh, uh, so she has a vision of what they're doing. They're not working in the fields. They have, like, a nice slave job uh, up north. And maybe she can enter into that. And then she goes to different states, you know, her idea of freedom gets uh, enlarged, it shrinks. Um, so, you know, hopefully I'm making up situations in the book that we can, t- that she can test her ideas about the world mm-hmm. and be tested in her own, in her own life. Yeah, because, I mean, the arc of it is really quite beautiful, this sort of the deception, the betrayal of South Carolina leads her to the skepticism, uh, a real opportunity does arise to her, the sense of being damaged and traumatized and untrustworthy of the world enough. The, the difficult, the psychological challenge of the, the enslaved adapting themselves to the notion of, of, of freedom. Well, you know, I think just as a layperson, I have my idea of what PTSD is from you know pop culture. Um, so how do how do I make a realistic plantation psychology for me as someone in the early twenty first century? And so I think we have an idea from the movies. There's a plantation, maybe there's like an Uncle Tom, but everyone else is like pitching in, helping each other. For me, you know, I think you get hundred people in a room. And 10 are really great, 10 are terrible, and the rest of them sort of vacillate. But if you take people who have been traumatized, brutalized, raped, uh, assaulted their whole lives, they're not going to be as generous as, you know, we'd hope they would be. They're going to be in it for survival. Uh, whatever small shred of self-respect they can get, they're going to go for And they're not going to be nice to Cora, uh, who's alone. They're not going to be always on each other, have each other's backs. And so, um, just talk about her psychology... How do I, looking back 150 years, 60 years, make a functioning functioning plantation that works for me? You know, I, I try to try to make it plausible as a modern reader. Yeah, no, I think it, it's a. What is terrific is that it, it the, the psychology persists and it follows the narrative arc in a way that I thought was really quite significant. But uh, let me just ask you about like on the Valentine Farm in Indiana, Cora has a moment right in which the community takes up a song. A song that she remembers in particular from the Randall farm being used by the overseer, as you write, uh, to signal uh, to go back to picking after a whipping. Cora then asks herself, could such a bitter, how could such a bitter thing become a means of pleasure? And this line really struck me as, in many respects, the kind of this central question, the wrenching of pleasure out of bitterness of African American culture in general, from the Fisk Jubilee singers to the blues to hip hop to, in many respects, this novel, bitch in a perverse way, I found enormously pleasure to, pleasurable to read. And 
in a sense, I, it makes me wonder, like, what does this question mean to you, and is this novel an attempt, in a sense, to transform this bitterness of this legacy into the, a beautiful literary work? Uh, I, I guess it's not that, uh, that was the intent. I'm glad it hopefully it does, in the end, I bought it. Uh, become a, uh, a beautiful literary work. You know, I, I think, I don't necessarily think of what I'm trying to affect for the reader. You know, I think I have a, an idea and a premise, and I've try to flesh it out with characters and situations, and, and hopefully it comes together. I think it does, it, it did come together in this book. I'm not sure what the reader can or can take away. It was a journey for me creating and working on it, and definitely the last four pages are like the best four pages I've, I've done, and I can go back and, and, <laughs> and I can, you know, usually I'm sick of the book when I'm done, but I can go back and, and relive uh, different moments of the, the creative process. So, I think I need more time to figure out how other people are receiving it. Like it's still so sort of new to have it out in the world. Reviewers have one take, and then uh, readers have a different take. So I haven't formulated a theory on what I was trying to do or how. It well, it's just this question. I think that the, you put in Cora's mouth at this particularly profound moment, right, where she she hears a song, which to her is a call to work after the abjection brutality. The, the slaves being forced to watch someone being whipped, and then the song arrives and telling everyone to go back to work. But here she is on a farm, surrounded by free blacks in in Indiana, and the song strikes up, and it's got a different tempo, a different tune, and it's a celebration. Well, and she's like, "What is going on here? How yeah. do I?" Her, her and it, it what offers her is that an opportunity to say, "Maybe this is home." Maybe Except, this is you know, home. I sort of ally myself more with her reaction of recoiling. Yeah. And like for you know for people who didn't go what I didn't experience what I went through, they can embrace the song uh, and find it jubilant and then freeing. But I think more of the part of core that can't enter that because yeah. she's so damaged. And that sure. goes back to what you're saying about psychology, I guess. Yeah, I think it, if anything, it just all you know apparently evidently it opens up a very fruitful ambiguity in the middle of this of really trying to figure out where you know Cora is, where she's going, can she be healed? Can she be whole? I mean these. I think are fascinating questions, and she offers this moment of just saying, "Yes, actually, maybe this is my moment of freedom. Maybe I am home. Maybe this is it." And but that too is troubling because they're so it's so difficult for her to let go. Well, I think you have to have that hope. I mean, you know, so take that first brave step off off, off the plantation. You have to believe that there is a refuge up north, and maybe it's Massachusetts yeah. or New York or Canada. But you really do have to have this reserve of, of bravery uh, to take that first step. And then as she goes from um, state to state and is frustrated and, and enlightened in, in different situations. Her idea of freedom changes and, and what she's capable of. So we are, we, are, you know, we are tracing her, the progress of her ideas of, of what freedom can be, what she can be. You know, she's learning her powers as, as she goes. Yeah. So uh, we, we need to sort of bring this together, but I wanted to ask you, one about Elijah Lander, who I, which I, you refer to as a sickly child, which I know is a, a sort of fantasy of your own personal biography, and whether you sort of, sort of see him as a sort of surrogate for yourself in that sense, but he describes, an America too is a delusion, the grandest one of all, he says, in the middle of this spectacular recapitulation of the, the Douglas Booker T. Washington debates, I think at the sort of center of all of this, and, and, and it made me think that, you know, of arriving at this moment in particular, because, you know, the historian, historical materialist, what are the conditions of possibility of this novel? 
And it makes me think of, you know, in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, in the midst of a hellish presidential campaign, the last months of the Obama administration, this book deeply troubles any notion, especially white liberal notions, or the comforting notions of historical progress in the field of race relations. Uh, do you feel that we've made progress in race relations and justice since the time of slavery? What, do, what does racial progress mean to you? Um, sure, because it's so incremental. I mean, I think, um, it's talking about the book and how it, what I learned about slavery in elementary school. I think, you know, one day in fourth grade, we did slavery and Lincoln. And Lincoln comes and frees the slaves, and that's all we talk about. And then, then I feel a couple, years later, after a couple years later, in sixth grade, maybe there was something about separate but equal, and then Martin Luther King comes, and everything is fine. And I think, yeah. Um, so, uh, we like, who wants to think about how your great, 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 great grandfather uh, raped and brutalized a bunch of other human beings? Who wants to think about how your great, 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 great grandfather, grandmother was brutalized? Mm -hmm. um, we don't, you know, it's, uh, it's not the problem is it's hard to tackle, you know, it's hard to tackle in your mind. Yeah. So, and it is incremental, and I think there's a notion of hope in the book, and while CORE does endure many different travails and tribulations. She comes to a, a place that's, without giving spoilers, further away than where she started, you know, yeah. pretty far from where she started, so. No, I, I do uh, totally agree with Oprah in this, that the, the ending is damn near perfect. Um, I can't really recall a more extraordinary and affecting last line of a novel, and it really does feel like you wrote it first. I mean, is this... Did you just write the ending as well? Um, I, I, I have in the last couple of books, but not, you know, not this one. And I, and I just remember the day when I wrote those last four pages, and you know, it was last November, so it hasn't even been a year yet. Yeah, and it's heart-wrenching and beautiful. I was just so moved by it. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad. I think, uh, you know, people say, when do you know when the, your, your work is done? And I think, and for me, it's always just, when everything that had to happen has happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely... Well, I, uh, the way of ending here, I, I did feel cheated by the ending because I wanted a chapter of what happens to Cora when she comes to California. Um, if she makes that far. Yeah. Right. She's had, but like, it, it does, what, what would the California chapter look like? You've been here long enough to figure that out? Well, going, going back to incremental progress, even if she, in an alternative history, went to Boston and won a million dollars in the, lot, in the Boston lottery of 1850, she's still an African-American woman in America in 1850, so... Uh, she's not going to be transported from her, her time and place. Yeah. She can, you know, maybe only escape the place where she came from. Yeah, and she would be, too, in California. Let me just turn and actually see if there are any questions that anyone uh, the audience wants to ask. I've got, a, like, a language question. Because when I started reading the book, and I have about 50 pages left, so I really appreciate that we didn't do the spoilers because I'm so into it. Um, <laughs> but I stopped a couple times to search a few terms. And most of them were, like, nouns that related to the slave trade in particular. But I just, like... I wanted to make sure I was understanding it, and I was curious before I even knew you did this, we're going to do this talk, about what you were thinking about the line between introducing words and also the way people are speaking because of a certain time and like running that line of, because it was perfect for me, it just put me in the right place and I looked up a few things and felt like I knew more, but it wasn't too much and it wasn't too little. Did you think a lot about that, about just like introducing these new things? No, I mean, I think it's uh, in a historical novel, you want the... Uh, even if you're gesturing towards a historical novel, you want uh, to keep the vocabulary right. And, and part of the fun of doing research, you know, reading the same narr narrative and saying, you know, reading, my brother had a scourging he never forgot. And like, so it's, 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 just, be, it's just being beaten. <laughs> 
but you know, it's so, so much more vivid that you're, you know, you're a scourge, you're being a scourged, and and so, you know, as I'm reading slave narratives, I'm taking nouns, I'm taking bits of reality I can put into my book to make it real. Um, I don't worry about the effect on a reader. I mean, I think, um, especially now, you can just tap on the word and that pops up. I've had books that had uh, very complex syntax and books that were more direct in address. And so I'm always just trying different voices and see how they work. And I think I, you know, was trying to be authentic. And that means sometimes you lose somebody and then they have to look it up. And they're worse <laughs> things in life. Right. And you've successfully done more than tried. I, I really think this is a tremendous success. And I, I, the novel is outstanding. And I congratulate you on your success and, and everything that is to come. Again, thank you so much. Like This has been really an, uh, an illuminating conversation. So thank you. It was my pleasure. Well, that does it for this episode of Script Chat. Don't forget, you can read The Underground Railroad on Scribd for free with your subscription. If you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.